a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expounding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, incredibly special one, guys, Flying Disc Press's Philip Mantle comes by to talk about his new book, UFO Landings UK, and it is unbelievably cool. He, This book specifically focuses on the high strangeness cases of high strangeness it was just ufo landings right so uh, but this is the coolest of the cool so he details several amazing cases that stand out in his book for us on this episode during this conversation as well we get an update on some fascinating new developments in the pascagoula case which dr irena scott also a flying disc press we've had her on the show guys i highly recommend that you guys go check that episode if you haven't heard it yet uh, they are together finding all sorts of new information and it is absolutely fascinating so all the ways to find Philip Mantle and Flying Disc Press and his books are going to be located down in the show notes. You guys, make sure that you take advantage of that. Also down there is going to be our resource links. So Food Forest Abundance, get your freedom from fear on. Libsyn, if you'd like to start your own podcast, I highly encourage that anyone who even has the inkling to think like, oh, I should start my own podcast, just do it. It's so cool. It's the coolest thing I've ever done. I think everybody should have one if that's something that you're called to do. That link down there for Libsyn will give you two months free, by the way. So that's a good head start for you guys. Also, if you are going to feed the beast that is Amazon in any capacity, run it through our link. It helps the show located down there as well. Now, also down there is going to be Opus. Opus is the organization for paranormal understanding and support, and they can help you out. They're a wonderful resource for anything like missing time, uh, any woo-woo stuff that you feel like you've encountered, abduction, paranormal, anything like that, guys. Opus is your one-stop shop for that, and it is linked down in the show notes as a resource for y'all. As well down there, uh, you can expand your experience with us here on the show through expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is going to be where all the lives are replayed. Episodes come out early. Um, too hot for YouTube stuff's over there. All the cool, to, the stuff that's way too cool to put on YouTube, we put it there for free. Uh, all of it, guys. Just go check it out. And also, it's a central hub for all of the merchandise and socials and Rockfin and all that good stuff. So check that out in the show notes as well. All right, so without any further ado, let's get to this incredibly cool conversation with the mighty powerful Philip Mantle. All right, ladies and gentlemen, an extremely special episode. Of course, we have the great and powerful Philip Mantle from Flying Disc Press. Philip, how are you today, brother? 
Yeah, I'm fine, thank you very much, Brandon. And it's a pleasure to speak to you again. You, you almost maybe sound like the Wizard of Oz then, the great and powerful hiding behind the curtain. <laughs> and that's you. You're you're this epicenter spoke, and we were talking about this a little bit uh, before here, but you're Flying Disc Press, man. You're one of the first people I reached out to on this huge list that I'd been compiling for a long time to reach out to these great people to, to have on the show when I, when I started this one. And uh, you have been, and most people may not know this about you, but again, uh, we were just talking about this, that you're your voice has actually been in just as many episodes as mine has. So you're actually, you and I have been on the same amount of Expanding Reality episodes because your voice is the first one that does the first <laughs> Expanding Reality. It's this big, boomy, beautiful thing that I just loved. And so I can't thank you enough. So you're as big a part of this as I am. It's wonderful. No, it's my, my pleasure. And I just hope your listeners can understand my Yorkshire accent. <laughs> it, it's it's one of the best, man. And um, like I said, you're just wonderful. Uh, you're the reason I know Trey Hudson, Philip Mantle, Dr. Irina Scott. I mean, all of those folks are under your umbrella of Flying Disc Press. So tell me about that, actually. Let's start there. What made you want to form Flying Disc Press in the first place? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a colleague of mine in the UK called John Hansen. John's a retired police detective, and uh, he runs his own publications under the uh, Haunted Skies banner, and I would recommend them to, to anyone. Um down the years, Brandon, I've been, you know, a UFO researcher, investigator. I've, I've, I've been a magazine editor and, and so on. So I got to know people all over the world. And in 2015, a colleague of mine uh, called Peter, Peter Cielibius in, in Poland, of all places, uh, sent me a book manuscript, not necessarily for publication. Peter was... Um, practicing his written English. His spoken English is great, but he was practicing his written English. He said, will you look at this for me, Philip? And uh, I read it and I thought, this would make a, this is a great book, you know? And um, my colleague, John Hansen said, well, why don't you publish it? I mean, you start. And he, he, he gave me the, the, you know, the indications of how you do it. Um, but I took the plunge. I jumped in with both feet and I published uh, what became known as UFOs over Poland in, I think it was November 2015. And that was it. I was up and running. I, you know, I made mistakes because it was a steep learning curve. I, I, um, and a couple of years down the line, I got the opportunity to take early retirement from the day job. So I did. And flying this press and writing and researching is what I do now full time. That's it. And I don't even have to leave the house, which is great. You know, I don't have to sit in the traffic jam on my way into work on a morning. Uh, so it came about purely by chance. Um, I'm 64 now. So I, retirement age here is 66. So I, I hadn't planned to do it for another couple of years. But 2015, Flying This Press was launched. I love it. And we needed you out here. And that's why we needed to get you into early retirement. We needed to get you out here to push these books and ideas and concepts because your publishing company, man, is just one of the most incredible. Every single person you have on there, every author, every subject is just something I find absolutely fascinating. And that shelf back there is full of a bunch of books that uh, your kind authors have sent. And uh, I've gotten the honor to speak with them. But again, it all hubs from you. So it's incredible. Keep some space, Brandon, because there's more coming. <laughs> and of course, what, what we've done in the last couple of years, uh, we've expanded as well. So we now have Flying Disc Press in France uh, with my friend Jean Libero. So some of our books are published in French. And then we have uh, Flying Disc Press Latin America based in Argentina with Dario 
uh, Hernandez. And Dario has published some of our books in Spanish. So, you know, and we're looking to work with other publishers in different parts of the world. We've got one book published in Russian. We've got some in German, some in Italian, one in Japanese. So, you know, we're always on the lookout to work with others wherever possible. Yeah, and I know uh, Greg Sullivan. Have you ever heard of him? The director no. of Jay Seti over in Japan. Okay, I'm going to link you two up. This is so cool. I love this. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of translated into French, I know your new book, UFO Landings UK, is also one of those that's going to be translated into French. So let's talk about your new book, brother. I know you've written several, but this one's brand new. It focuses on the UK landings and with a high emphasis on high strangeness. So let's talk about that. What made you want to start that book? Yeah, it goes back a long time, Brandon, to when I almost first began in, in this business back in 1980. Um, I did some, I live in the north of England. I, I used to live about five miles outside of the city of Leeds, uh, about three miles from the city of Wakefield. And my home city is Wakefield. I was born just outside of it. And, and I did some local media, I just started. And um, got a telephone call, and this this lady, she said, she said, is that Mr. Mantle? I said, yeah, she says, you won't believe me, you won't believe me, you won't believe me. I said, well, give us a chance, you know. So um, she lived in a small town just literally a few miles from where I live. It's a town called Normanton. So we're going back to the summer of 1980. So my colleague, Mark Bertel, and I went to visit this lady. She's called Mrs. Westerman. Um, her house is a terraced house. It's what we call an elevated house here in the UK. You go up half a dozen steps to get in the front door. It was also a cul-de-sac, so the road came to an end, and there was no houses opposite. And she said, you know, my, she had four or five children. They were outside playing a ball game, beautiful sunny day, and she was in the kitchen washing the dishes after lunch. And one of the, the children came in and said, Mom, Mom, there's an airplane crashed in the field. So at the bottom of this cul-de-sac was some trees, a little stream, and you went up a little hill, and there's a field with some electricity pylons in it. So she said, I came out, stood at the front door, and because it was an elevated house, she could see across these fields. And she says, Philip, there was this thing on the ground. It wasn't an airplane. It was shaped like a Mexican hat, like a silver-gray color. So she got hold of the children. Um, they walked down through these trees, up the, up the other side of the hill, and the, this field is bordered by a fence. And when they got there, this thing is still there. But now there are three humanoids in the field. They're all dressed in, in white boiler suits, or coveralls, you might call them. Uh, they had some kind of visor over their face. They were so close to them, Brandon, they could see that they were wearing mittens and not gloves. And they were waving something across the ground. And one of the children wanted to try and climb the fence and get in there. And, uh, you know, mum held him back. And at this point, these three beings walked to the back of this thing. It rose into the sky, stopped and shot off at an angle without making a sound. It was gone in an instant. Uh, so Mrs. Westerman thought, this will be on the TV news tonight. You know, wow. There's a, for those that know, don't know the north of England, there's a huge, great motorway goes past the town of Normanton, thousands of cars. And so she switches on the TV news that night. Not a thing. She bought the local newspaper that week. Nothing. She even asked a couple of her neighbours. They didn't see anything. So we interviewed them all. We even interviewed one of the children's friends. Uh, he hadn't seen anything because he'd gone home for his lunch. 
And when he came back, it was all over with. But, he, you know, he told us about the excitement. Now, uh, uh, you know, this, this area in the north of England at the time, Brandon, was a co predominantly coal mining. The coal mines littered the landscape here. My father worked down the coal mine all his life. Uh, I grew up in a, in a little mining village. So I knew these people. You know, they were the kind of people I'd grown up with. And Mrs. Westerman, for example, wouldn't allow us to use her name, wouldn't allow us to take a photograph of her. She was just bemused by the whole thing, A, in seeing this, and B, equally, why the hell had nobody else apparently seen it? She couldn't figure that out. So my, my when we're interviewing her, my, my colleague Mark Birdsell was quite a good artist. So I'm taking notes and we're recording it. And he's scribbling away, but he's actually doing a drawing as she's talking and describing it. And when she'd finished, he said, what about that? She said, yeah, that's pretty close, you know. And we did the usual checks on the, you know, the local helicopter station, the police and so on. But, you know, we couldn't find any rational explanation for what these individuals had seen. So you have two choices. They're either telling the truth or they're telling you a lie. And we could find no reason why they would be telling us lies. And just to just to give you an idea, a couple of years back during just just at the start of the pandemic lockdown, I did a podcast with somebody. I can't remember who it was, and I, I recounted this same story, but I forgot to to use Mrs. Westerman's name. And a couple of weeks later, a lady from New Zealand emailed me, and she said, "Philip." What was the family's name? I used to live in Normanton. I've since emigrated to New Zealand. I said it was Westerman. She says, my best friend was called Westerman, and she still lives there, but she's changed her name now because she's married. She says, I'll, I'll drop her an email. She dropped her friend an email. Her friend was one of those children that I interviewed all those years back. And, and we got in touch, and she literally bullet-pointed the things that she could remember. She sent me a couple of emails. I saw this, boom, 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 boom. Uh, we, we haven't met because she doesn't want to get involved anymore. She, she won't allow me to use her name. She's got her own family. Plus it was COVID. You know, so I, you know, I respected that, but I just, you know, I just found that amazing, you know, that after all these years, it was still with her. So, but what it, what it did, Brandon, A, it confirmed for me that the UFO phenomena was real. And it didn't just happen in, you know, the desert of New Mexico. This was in my own backyard. I was a few miles from where I lived. And it, it wasn't a waste of time. There was something worthy of me investing my time, money and energy in investigating this subject. And, and this was the case that did it, you know, Mrs. Westerman back in, in Normanton in West Yorkshire. And it, it gave me an interest in, in UFO landing cases. So I just kept compiling them. I, I'd, I'd interview whoever I could when the opportunity arose. And it got to a stage where I thought, I better publish this lot. Um, and when the pandemic came, I'm sat in the house, can't go anywhere. So there was, there was no excuse anymore. I kept moving the goalposts or, you know. But uh, so during the pandemic, I wrote it and now it's out. Well, you can only fight that so long, you know, and then it's going to take over and just be a calling to you. Now, it's fascinating about Mrs. Westerman's case because there are some details in there that I haven't heard before. Uh, we have heard described uh, one piece or a jumpsuit. What do you guys call them in the UK? We call it a boiler suit. Boiler suits. OK, you could yeah. call it a boiler suit. You might call it a coverall. 
you know, so it's it's all one, all legs in one, you know, or we might we might even call it an overall. Right. Or the Venture Brothers, he would call it a speed suit. Yeah, it's that one thing. Uh, this is what's interesting, but I haven't heard white ones reported. You hear white robes and things like that. And then especially the mittens. That's an interesting mm. one, too, where it's just a thumb and you picture the classic mitten. I have yeah. never heard that report before. Well, again, it'll give you some idea of how close they were to this because they could make out these details. Uh, You know, if you were at a distance, you wouldn't be able to probably figure out these these small details. But she said, no, they had mittens on the hands and they were very close. I'm talking yards away from it. I'm not talking a half a mile. I'm talking a matter of yards from where the field isn't that big. Brandon, even if it was at the other end of the field, it's only a small space anyway, you know. And, and like I said, it was a beautiful sunny day. Children were out playing. People about their business. There's a motorway goes past there. Uh, it's called the M62. If anybody wants to look at it, and there's thousands. It's the main motorway across the northwest of England. So on one side, on the east coast is Hull. So it goes from Hull right the way across the country and ends up in Liverpool. You know, and all points in between. And Normanton is a little town. You know, in between all that. And like I said. These were the kind of people I'd grown up with. You know, my father was a coal miner all his life. And uh, Mrs. Westerman's husband, um, he was at work at the time when we spoke to her. And he worked down one of the local coal mines. They're all gone now. That They're literally all gone. But the whole area was littered with them. And I make of it what you will. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't come to any great conclusions in the book. All I'm saying is here's, here's these cases with these really high strangeness factors that comes from the late Dr. Heineck, you you make of it what you will, you know, it's as simple as that. Absolutely. But it's fascinating uh, that this is your area of study. So uh, if you don't mind, let's break down some cases in your book that really stood out to you. Oh, there's lots. There's lots. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll pick a couple because I, not that I'm outstanding. It's the fact that I got to meet the people involved and interview them. One gentleman was called John Warren. Now, Mr. Warren's account happened in 1943. So this is right in the middle of the Second World War. And he was actually in the Royal Air Force at the time. And he was stationed at a place called uh, RAF Ludham. This is in Norwich in Norfolk. And he was actually an armorer. So the, the various aircraft, he would, he would arm with their bombs and bullets before they went off to do whatever. And um, on this particular night, I think it was May of 1943, he went to a, a local town to a, to a dance. They had a, he had a night off and he missed the last train back. So Mr. Warren had 12 miles to walk back to the base. Now, he was worried because in those days, if you were late back, you got into trouble. It wasn't the 12 miles that bothered him, but the fact that he'd be late. So he sets off. Obviously, it's dark, it's nighttime. As he's approaching the base, he says, up ahead, I could see just, just on the grass birds next to the road, this, this green glow. And he says, as I got closer, there is this humanoid being standing at the side of the road. It's got a box of some description on its chest. And from the top of this box is this green light shining up into its face. And he said it made its face look like it had got a big grin on it. I don't know if you did it as a kid where you got a torch 
on a flashlight, you will call them, and you stick it under your chin, and it distorts all your features. It reminded him of that. And then he says, in the grass behind it, there was this object on the ground. He described it as looking like a bell tent, uh, but it was illuminated. And then to the other side were two more beings. And he says it terrified the living daylights out of him. So he literally sprinted back to the to the to the the base. The base was nearby. Fortunately for him, a friend was staying up looking for him because he knew he was late and he let him in through a window so he didn't get in any trouble. And he said, I told my friend and he said, uh, I, he said, he didn't allow me to publish it at the time, but Mr. Warren will be long gone by now. I interviewed him in the 1980s and he said, had I been armed, Philip, I would have shot him because this is 1943. You know, it's the height of the Second World War. I'm at an RAF base. I knew it wasn't one of us. So if it wasn't one of us, it was one of them, i.e. the enemy. So he said, I would have shot the damn thing. But he said, you know, we don't take firearms to a dance. <laughs> and he reported it in the 1960s. Um, and we, in the book, we have a, a copy of the, the letter he got in response to that. And in the 1980s, I'd moved a few miles and I did some more local media and Mr. Warren saw me in that and he gave me a call. And I only lived a mile away. So I took I took the opportunity to go and sit in his front room. He'd recently retired himself. And there's a photo of him in there. And, then, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen that, Ran. And when somebody's recounting something in the past, they have this faraway look on their face. They, they can see it in their mind's eye. But Mr. Warren looked exactly like that you know he was almost he was reliving it in his mind and it spoke the living daylights out of him and it, you know and it has those areas of high strangeness it's right next to RAF base it's pre-Kenneth Arnold so we're going to 1943 he didn't call it an alien or a spaceman you know like 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 the the Westermans before them they never called it a flying saucer or a spaceship or aliens just this thing this thing and these these humanoid creatures, this you know this thing, um, and he just you know it, it, it had puzzled him for the rest of his life, and I dare say it did do to his dying days. And uh, I was I feel very fortunate, Brandon, to be able to sit in somebody's living room and speak to them face to face. This is great. Don't get me wrong, Skype, Zoom, Streamyard, whatever it is you use, but you know. Now, in those days, that didn't exist, and and I'm I'm glad I took the opportunity to go. I could have just phoned him up and took you know, taking the details on the phone, but to sit in somebody's living room and speak to them in person, you know, you can't beat it. You really can't. So that's just one example. Well, it's amazing, and it's still an incredible case because yes, this is pre pre Kenneth Arnold. This is pre uh, before flying saucers were the term was coined because that. Kenneth Arnold's sighting was the one that the newspapers called flying saucers. And so that's where we get that term from. So it's great that you point that out. Now, uh, also interesting to note that they both reported uh, three entities. So why do you think that that's so common is the three entity thing? I don't know. I just I just think in this instance, it's a, just a coincidence. I mean, you know, we have reports that where there were no entities reported, some where they were, some were single, you know, some the multiple that it, that is. There is no connection whatsoever that I could. Somebody asked me, is, is you know, is, is there any patterns amongst all of this, Philip? And if there is, then I, I can't see it. I've looked at age groups, locations, time of day, 
time of night, you know, geographical area. I mean, you name it, and and, and I can't see any. So I, I think in this sense, it's just pure coincidence. It, it is interesting um, that, that it is the three. Now, did either one, I know that both reported uh, saying humanoid beings, but were there any features where they were like, uh, yeah, they could pass as humans or green skin or gray or large eyes or any of those uh, significant things that we've heard about non-human intelligences, or could they just pass as humans walking around? Well, you know, with, with dozing Normans and they had a visor over their face, so they, they look pretty much human. But they couldn't see any facial features. They've got two arms, two legs. They weren't over tall. They weren't over small, you know, their boots and mittens on. Um, with this thing, it, they, it looked like a human a humanoid, human being, apart from this green glow in its face. Just made It wasn't sure whether it distorted its features or its features were already distorted. He said, yeah, there's, a, there's actually a drawing in the book that Mr. Mr. Warren made. And you see this thing with this big grin on its face. You know, like you do with the, the memes, emojis with a smiling face. Yeah. It's almost got that kind of grin on, and he's not sure if it was an actual grin or it's just the, the way the light made it look, this green light shining out of this box on its chest. And it just stood there. It didn't move, it was completely motionless, didn't, you know, didn't bat an eyelid, literally. And that, and that was also scary to him, you know. He says even when you when you stand on guard, Philip, when you're on guard duty, you still move because you can't stand still. You, you shuffle around a little bit. And he says this was no this was no Royal Air Force guard. He said, I, I, you know, and uh, so it was just peculiar, just very peculiar. And 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 not only that, you know, Mr. Warren himself had first reported it in the sixties, and then when he saw me in the local newspaper still felt compelled again to, to reach out to me and report it once again, even though he'd done so 20 years previously. So it, it obviously meant a lot to him. You know, it wasn't just, oh, I saw a UFO and that's it, forget about it. You know, I've reported it now. Um, but again, you know, it was just nice to sit in his, his living room. You, not only that, Brian, you can look round. I couldn't see any UFO books or, you know, anything like that lying around. So it, it didn't look like he had a an in-depth knowledge of the subject at all. And certainly Mrs. Westerman had no knowledge of it, I, I can assure you. Uh, but just, you know, one of those strange little cases that, that features in the book. Well, the RAF connection is very interesting because you guys have a very famous landing case over there, the Rendlesham Enigma. Uh, and that that one's fascinating. Again, at RAF Bentwaters and uh, Woodbridge out there. Now, um, Something that that's really interesting and this kind of makes me think of as well as Ryan Musgrave Evans is, you know, crypto terrestrials, how they really have a technology that they're utilizing. And this is what the visors, the green lights, even the uh, suits would denote, right, is that there's some sort of interface, there's some sort of technology. So it kind of takes the woo woo out of it, even though it's tremendous, it could just be like a high technology. So um, th this is an interesting thing. Now, uh, Mrs. Westerman, did you ever find out if she had any military connection whatsoever, even through her no parents? None whatsoever. No, none whatsoever. I mean, you know, there's no military in this area. Uh, like I said, in, in, in the, t the time frame we're talking about in 1980, it was all coal mines, you know, and that was it. You know, no disrespect. You know, I'm the son of a coal miner and I'm proud to say that. My dad worked at the coal face. He was, he was, he fought in the military during the Second World War. And after that, he went down the mines and, and worked, you know, digging coal for the rest of his life. Um, I had other friends and colleagues who worked in the mining industry, 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's no military around here. <laughs> Once the mines closed, it was pretty much of a ghost town for a while, I can assure you. But uh, no, no military connections. I, you know, there was one um, helicopter base um, based in Leeds that we contacted just, you know, so we'd done it. And, and that, you know, there was no helicopters involved. Uh, no, they would have known what they knew what a helicopter looked like, and and, and they could have heard it for miles away. I, you know, the, the 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 helicopter where I live goes over here on a regular basis, and I don't even have to look out the window; I can hear it. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Just just make of it what you will, Brandon. It's just fa- I just find it fascinating. Oh, it's so because especially because I hadn't been involved that long. My colleague Mark Burstall had, and. You know, I'd, I'd read a couple of books, well, I've read a few books, and they, they mainly featured cases that were overseas, mainly in the United States. And here is this case, you know, three or four miles from where I lived. And, and you know, it, I think, wow, you know, so it's not all in, you know, New Mexico or wherever. Uh, and it, it is in our back garden. And, and what you'll see in the book, of course, is these encounters happen here, there and everywhere, um, not just in America. Um, one of the reasons for concentrating just on incidents in the UK, Brandon, is because there are those out there, certainly in the media, would have us believe that these incidents only happen in America, either in the swampland of the Mississippi or the desert of New Mexico, but that, as you and I know, that's not true. You know, so here is an example, lots of examples of what happens here in our, our little islands in the UK, because we are a rather small place when it comes to geography. You are, but you guys have the most fascinating things because uh, uh, crop circles are concentrated in the UK, which is fascinating. Yes, and thankfully they're nowhere near me. <laughs> I've got I've got enough to do. They're mainly in the in the south or the west of the country. I have been and walked around crop circles, but that's a long time ago. But uh, you know we don't have that many wheat fields in the north anyway. So maybe that's why we don't have any crop circles. Yeah, it's geographically specific based on the medium they prefer to um, create artistic in, right? If you want to take it to that redundant, that it's just art. Uh, so give us another case, my man, from your book, man. These are fascinating. Well, there's probably one of the famous cases from from the UK. I haven't included Rendlesham, by the way, because that that can take up whole books. I per- so I, on purposely, I miss. I, I, I didn't put that in. But um, this happened in November 1979 in Scotland at a place called Livingston. So, for anyone wanting to know where Livingston is, the two major cities of Scotland are Edinburgh on one side and Glasgow on the other. And Livingston lies sort of in between them, in the middle-ish. And it involved forestry worker Robert Taylor. Mr. Taylor uh, was on his way to work that day, going to a place called Deckmont Woods, just, like just outside of the town. So he got in his truck with his dog, off he goes to work. It's, you know, it's a typical dull November morning. I mean, it's always doing in Scotland anyway, <laughs> you know, but... So he, he parks the truck, he walks down a dirt track in this in, in Deckmont Woods, and uh, he comes across a little clearing in the woods. And in this clearing is this dome-shaped object. It's got it, it's domed, it's got what he described as like a, a flange going around it. 
And on top of this was like little things that looked like propeller blades, although they weren't spinning. And he said part of the dome was transparent. And he stood there, you know, dumbfounded looking at this thing, when either from behind it or from underneath it came these two balls. They were dark coloured. They had spikes on them. And he said they looked like the Second World War sea mines. But they were on, they plopped across the ground. The ground was muddy and he could hear them as they rolled towards him. He said they plopped. They came up the side of him and he could feel a tugging on his trousers. And then he passed out. When he came around, he could hear this high pitched whistling noise. He had a strong smell of sulfur. His dog was doing cartwheels almost. And he staggered to his feet and this thing had gone. So he, he wobbled back to his truck. He tried to drive it. He couldn't drive it. So he walked the short distance down to home. His wife was still at home and he's got mud on his face and on his clothes. And she said, "What? Well, whatever's happened? He says, I've been attacked. So she, she phoned the police. What do you do if your husband says he's been attacked? She rung the police. The police came. Uh, Mr. Taylor was taken to hospital, um, but he got fed up waiting. So he, he said, I'm all right. And he went home. Uh, the police went back to the location, Brandon. And here's where it all started to get interesting. In this little clearing in the woods, and only in this clearing are these tracks. There's like two like, almost like caterpillar tracks and then these U-shaped impressions across the ground. Now, fortunately, that night it was cold, so the ground froze. So it preserved the impressions in the ground. So the police did two, well, they did a number of things. They launched a full forensic investigation into this because Mr. Taylor was such an upstanding member of the local community. Um, they did a diagram of these marks and they photographed them. So they were all preserved. It's like a crime scene. You know, they treated it as a crime scene. Mr. Taylor's trousers that he was wearing that day, these were very heavy duty trousers, were ripped on both sides where he felt these things grab hold of him. So they were taken for examination. And um, we have a copy of the, the forensic uh, report from the local police. And it says these tears were consistent with these trousers being pulled upwards, which is exactly what Mr. Taylor said he felt. And they could find, you know, no, no rational explanation for this. Uh, Mr. Taylor had no idea. He was a very, what we call a very straight-laced Scotsman, you know. Uh, and again, some years after the event, <coughs> I had the opportunity to visit him. And again, sit in his living room and he, he recounts this story to us. I, I, was, I went there with a colleague of mine called Malcolm Robinson. Malcolm's from Scotland. Malcolm was there, I think, the very next day after this happened. So he was on site. It wasn't the next day, it was the day after, but he was there within no time. We went back some years later and I interviewed Mr. Taylor and he, he, he still had that look on his face, as, as you know, which reminded me of Mr. Warren and so on. And a little side story for you. Malcolm and I... Uh, went to Decamont Woods to the incident, to the location. And the, the local council had actually now put a picnic bench in there. So there was a table and a bench, you could sit and have a picnic. 
It was all concreted in. And I just said to Malcolm, why don't you get a little brass plaque made? You know, I just screw it onto the side of this picnic bench, you know, Robert Taylor Livingston incident as it's called. Malcolm, to his great credit, took that idea and he went to the local council. And eventually they didn't just screw a brass plaque on, they erected a huge great stone cairn with a big plaque embedded into it to commemorate the, the location and the event. And in the last few years, they've even put up um, signage. So it tells you about the incident and tells you where it is. Because if you just look at the woods, you would not have no idea where to go. And again, Malcolm was being responsible for that. So that, that all stemmed from our little conversation going back there. We only went to take a few photographs, you know. Um, but it's the only case anywhere in the UK that had a full police forensic investigation carried out. And the officers that involved have gone on the, you know, have gone on the record, and and they had no idea what happened. And they all, they all, they all say the same thing about Mr. Taylor. What an upstanding member of the community he was, and 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 they treated it as a as a crime, you know. And uh, I I don't know. You make of it what you will. Malcolm has a whole book out about this particular incident, so I, I look for that. But. I, 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 again, I was just very grateful to be able to speak to uh, Mr. Taylor in person. Yeah, it's so fascinating because there are so many interesting things about that. Um, when I hear, of course, the trousers being pulled up, I'm thinking that they came all this way for an intergalactic wedgie, you know, and he ended up passing out from it because it's such a good wedgie. Um, so whenever the uh, balls, I guess, the I guess drones or whatever we're going to call them, the spiked balls, ripped his pants, did it also leave any trace evidence on him? Did he have any damage, let's say, or scratches or there was, bruising? There was a couple of little scratches because this went right through because he's trying Trousers actually had a lining in them as well. So it went through the outer, it went through the lining, and it scratched him on his thigh. But I'm talking literally a, a minute scratch because these were really heavy-duty work trousers. You know, it wasn't a pair of, you know, Levi's or anything like that. Because you know, And they were lined up. There's, there's photographs of them in the book. Uh, there's photographs uh, of Mr. Taylor. There is reproductions of the photographs that were taken at the scene, so you can see these marks. There is a copy of the police um, diagram that they drew of, of you know, the, the crime scene, so to speak. And there's even part of their police report. I have the whole report, but I've just put the, the relevant part in there. So you can see them, you can read it from yourself, you know, what they say about these tears in his trousers. And uh, what is interesting, is that, and it's a little part of the, the, the description of this object that, we, that even I forget at times, when Mr. Taylor said he's standing there looking at it, before these balls came out, this dome, part of it was transparent. However, this transparency didn't remain in one spot. It moved around. So the transparent part of it shifted. I, I don't know how to describe that. So you're looking at it and let's say the right side of it is, is transparent. That transparency would shift its position. So it wasn't the whole dome that was transparent. It wasn't part of it that was transparent. The transparency shifted. It moved itself. And he's standing still. So it's not, 
It's not his viewpoint that is changing. Police stood there almost frozen to the spot. And I don't know what to make of that, but that's what Mr. Taylor said. And it's often a little thing like that that gets overlooked, but it's it's, it's in there. And I, I thought I would mention it now before I forget. You know, what it means, Brandon, I don't know. All I'm saying is it's it, it's part of the whole the whole account. Well, and it's so interesting because you think about the technology that they have now with um, I've seen showers and bathrooms uh, that have this now and you'll have somebody that's a, it's like a glass box. And I think they do this in Japan or South Korea, something like that, to where there's public restrooms on the street. They're just toilets like like a bus stop. But whenever you close the door, the whole glass frosts up. So it's like a technology to where it's completely transparent or it's not. So maybe that's a reverse engineering thing we got from them, like fiber optics or the micro trip. Right <clears throat> Now, um, what about his truck? So something that you said about this was is that he was he got in his truck but was unable to drive, and so he walked. Now, my, my question is, is was he unable to walk because he was physically fatigued and didn't trust himself operating a vehicle? No, or I, I, the know, truck he, just couldn't, he just couldn't drive it. It started all right. I think he almost drove it into a, a ditch So because he was very disorientated. Um, so he just left it and staggered down home. It's not far from Deckmont Woods, where Mr. Taylor used to live. You, you know, you could see the woods in the distance. So we're not talking miles and miles and miles away. They were literally on the edge of the town. And there were some other couple of UFO sightings around that time as well. Whether they're connected or not is, is, is another matter. But there were a couple of others. Because, again, there's a busy road, go, goes past the town, Um uh, and it even made it, there was a TV series done here, I think it was in the 1980s. It was called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Arthur C. Clarke, of course, the famous science fiction writer, and Robert Taylor's account featured on that, you know. And, um, you know, Mr. Mr. Taylor's account has been in the newspapers many times, but I thought I would run it in the book because I had the opportunity to interview him in person. And um, it, that makes all, it can make all the difference. Yeah, especially the way you're able to read their um, interpretation of it. Rather, the, the the way you describe the look on their face. It is like they're remembering, not trying to make something up. So, yes, that is a very interesting delineation. And you really only get that from face to face and you get a vibe, you get a feeling. Uh, and the reason I asked about the truck is sometimes you'll, you'll get to where the cars just don't operate, right? Or the vehicles just shut off due yes, to some electromagnetic absolutely. disturbance. So um, did he report it all any whenever he spoke about the translucent part, even though it moved, was there anything on the inside? Was there any details about panels or control surfaces or no, entities no, or anything? nothing? No, no. He just said it was partly transparent. And this transparency seemed to move. Uh, and it's almost like a little throwaway thing. You know, if, if you weren't listening carefully, you, you may not have even realized what he just said. Because, you know, as, as investigators, we sit there and we'll put our tape recorder on and we're taking the details. You know, how big was it? What color was it? You know, any noises, any smells. Like you said, how did you did your truck operate? This little detail like that may mean nothing. But on the other hand, it may mean everything. We just don't know. And that was just a little thing that he said. And I've seen his account reproduced elsewhere, and that little bit wasn't in there. I don't think anyone's missed it out on purpose. It's just, it's like, it's like, it's like Mrs. Westerman saying, oh, they had mittens on their hands. It's, it's, that's a little thing that's easy to miss, you know. Um, and it's just another puzzling factor to the whole thing. It, it really, unfortunately, it was cold that night, so the ground froze. It preserved the impressions that were in the ground, and 
police come up, thank you very much. Uh, and, and they treated it as a crime scene. So wild. And it's so cool that they had that type of reverence for one of their citizens, um, especially Absolutely. because he was a high level person, I guess, that he got that kind of treatment, but it got the attention that it needed to be recorded and then placarized. I think that that's wonderful that they kind of created this higher off in here, this place from uh, Rendlesham did this as well. There's a mock, you know, model of it over there and signs telling you how to get through. Um, so you have focused on the Pascagoula case, the 73 Pascagoula case, of course, and um, Calvin Parker, of course, has written a book under Flying Disc Press, which is wonderful. We had the opportunity, again, thanks to you, to contact with uh, Dr. Irina Scott about her book, Beyond Pascagoula. And is there anything in that case that you've come across that's new? Is there any new information? Yeah, lots. I love it. This is great. <laughs> you want me to tell you? Are you want me to tell you? <laughs> Go on. Yeah. Well, well let, let's give you a, an idea for those that don't know. Calvin and, and Charlie, two friends. Pascagoula, Mississippi, October the 11th, 1973. Calvin had gone to stay with Charlie and work in the shipyard. It was Calvin's first day at work. Uh, Calvin was almost 19. Charlie was 42. The one thing, passion that they, they shared was fishing. So Calvin's driving home in a new car that night. And Charlie says, you want to do some fishing tonight? Yeah, great. They get the gear. They go and buy some bait. Charlie says, I know where to go. So he shows Calvin, he's driving here. They pass another car that's parked up, you know, maybe got a, it's got a courting couple in it. They pass a no entry sign. Calvin says, I don't like that. Charlie says, don't worry about it. I come here all the time. So they park the car, go to one fishing spot. It's infested with flies. So they move to another one, which is a little old abandoned pier. And they stand in another pier, cast their line. And Calvin says, we saw these blue lights come from behind us. And he said, I was sure it was the police. He said, I thought we should not have ignored that no energy sign. We've got to spend the night in jail. You know, turns around. Of course, it's not the police. There is this rugby ball shaped object descending. It stopped about 18 inches off the ground. It got two lights at one end. It's this intense blue light. It was so bright that, could, it, it, you know, they couldn't really make out the outline of this thing at first. I think that's why sometimes in the early days they 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 miscalculated how big it was, simply because the lights were just dazzling. And then this opening appeared on the right-hand side, and the light intensified again. These three bizarre humanoid creatures literally floated out. They didn't touch the ground. They, they again they had mitten or crab-like hands. They were gray, all wrinkly, no neck. Their legs stayed together. They didn't walk. They floated across the ground. They got these carrot-like protrusions out of both sides of the head and one out front. Two got hold of Charlie. One got hold of Calvin. They took them on board this thing. I'm, I'm condensing the story here. Charlie's, uh, Calvin says, they, they put me on this glass-like table. Uh, this thing came out of the ceiling went around me and made some funny noises. There's this ugly creature, that's what he calls them. And then he says that there's another creature comes, but looks almost like human, but it's female. Apart from the middle fingers looked a bit longer. She did various things to him, but one of the, this is an interesting part. And again, it's a little throwaway statement, Carmen said. They took my shoes and socks off. 
and it did something with my foot and it hurt. And they were deposited back on the pier. The story came out, they went to the police, the story came out and so on. So when, when Calvin started working on his book, I said to him, have you got any documents, photographs? He said, Philip, I lost them all in Hurricane Katrina. Our house was under 10 or 12 feet of water. The lot were gone. So I said, okay, I'll see what I can find. Now, Dr. Hynek was on site in Pascagoula within two days of the event happening. So I thought, I'll start first off with the Center for UFO Studies, which he founded later that year. Now, QFOS sent me a PDF file, everything they had on it. And right in the middle of this file, Brandon, is a one-page typewritten. So it's on an old typewriter. It's dated October the 13th. And the document is headed, puncture marks. And it details a physical examination of Charlie and Calvin. And it said that they found puncture marks, in inverted commas, on Charlie's left arm. And what did we say about little throwaway marks? A fight. Remarks, they found puncture marks on Calvin Parker's foot. Bear in mind, Calvin has said, they took my shoes and socks off. I did something with one of my feet and it hurt. And it said at the bottom of this document, we took and photographs were taken of these marks. In this file, there is no photos. I asked Calvin, I said, who examined you? And he said, it was Dr. James Harder. He came down and worked with Heineck. He wasn't a medical doctor, but he, he, he asked us to just strip off and have, you know, and he checked us over. I said, okay. So last year, one of my colleagues at the Center for UFO Studies sent me an email. He says, Philip, I've been going through some files looking for something. I assume you've got these, but I thought I would send them anyway, just in case. I wasn't looking for these. I'm looking for something totally different. It's the photographs mentioned in that puncture marks document. So here you have uh, Charlie Hickson's left arm with these marks on his arm. And you can tell it, you know, it's Charlie because they've written his name and the date on the back of the photograph. And then you have Calvin Hickson's, sorry, Calvin Parker's foot with these three little marks on the underside of his foot. And again, Calvin's name is on the back of the photograph and the date. So we have them both, I mean, both gentlemen giving their statements. Then we have this document talking. I mean, this is document is dated two days after the event, literally two days. A mark's been on their arm and foot. And then last year, out of the blue, these black and white photographs turning up and it shows you the marks on Charlie's arm and on Calvin's foot. So which foot was it on uh, Calvin? Um, I, I think it was his left foot, but I'm not 100% sure without checking. Interesting that they're both the left side. That's that's very interesting. And there's something about a vein that runs, uh, that goes directly to your heart on your left side that may play a clue. It's, again, one of those throwaway things, but it's interesting that it was the same side, but they took both shoes off. Uh, were the three marks um, in more of a triangle pattern or a row, like Orion's belt? No, they look, they, look like, they look like a little triangle, you know, Um but I was astounded. I'm sat there with an open mouth when, when I opened this email and there's the photographs. I never thought we would see them. I searched online for them previously and there's no sign of them. So they have never, ever seen the light of day. Um, and, and we will be publishing 
all of this next year because it's the 50th anniversary. Dr. Irina Scott and I um, are working on a new book and it will have these in it plus a whole lot more uh, for next year. And I was just astonished, you know, is this proof that there's a, there is indeed a physical element to the abduction phenomena? Again, you know, you can have to draw your own conclusion. I would argue that maybe it does. Um, but not only that, I mean, as you say, Calvin, Calvin actually wrote two books. The first one is called Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter. And the second one is Pascagoula, The Story Continues. Calvin did some local press when the book came out. And, and one journalist came along, and uh, she's called Karen Nelson. She worked for the local newspaper, but she did a little film. It's like a little eight-minute mini documentary, you know? And she interviews Calvin, they go back to the site. She interviewed one of the police officers involved that night and so on. Eventually, this ended up on YouTube. And, I, you know, I'm watching it. I've, I've seen it before, but I'm watching it again. And fortunately, you could leave messages. And someone left a message and it said, my mother and father were on the opposite side of the river that night. And they too saw the UFO. And it left a name. It wasn't, a, you know, a, a made up name. And they, I found this, this lady um, and, I, and I said, was it possible to speak to your mom and dad? And she said, yeah. So we did. And they were Mr. and Mrs. Blair. They lived in Alabama, which was just down the road from, from Calvin. And they said, Mr. Blair worked in the fishing industry and he was waiting for a boat coming in that night. It was late. He was in a bad mood, you know, uh, and Mrs. Blair's on the pier. And she said, I could see this blue thing over the opposite side of the river. And she said, it either looked like it was lost or it was looking for something. It was moving around pretty erratically. And she just then, the boat came in for my husband. She said, I'm walking along this pier and there is this, enormous splash in the water next to her. And she said, I look down, these are her words. She says, there's a gray man in the water. It went under the water and never came back up. Mr. Blair, he called it the gray humanoid. He said, I saw it come up out of the water and head back across the river. He saw the blue lights as well. And um, of course, the next day, they see Charlie and Calvin on the local news, everybody taking the mickey out of him, making fun of them, you know, two drunken hillbillies or whatever you call them, rednecks, I don't know. <laughs> so they didn't say anything. They never reported it. And Mr. and Mrs. Blair have told us a lot more since then. Sadly, Mr. Blair died last year. But Mrs. Blair is still still, still okay. And we had, I'll give you one idea. Um, Calvin, again, did a, a book signing in the town. This chap, chap come up and said, hello, Mr. Parker, can I buy a book? Oh, by the way, I saw the UFO that night and he walked away. Fortunately, somebody was taking photographs and we have a photograph of him buying the book. So I put that on, on social media and somebody said, oh, I know who that is. I said, well, could you ask him if, if we could speak to him, please? And they said, sure. And it was a chap called Lewis Lee. He was now retired. So we interviewed Mr. Lee, and he was actually working in the shipyard on the other side of the river. And he said, I, I, I was a crane driver. And he said, 
the cab is about 10 or 12 feet off the ground. I got in, I got in the cab. And it's as soon as I got in the cab, Philip, I could see this thing out across the water. So you've never seen anything like it. You know, I can't do a Mississippi accent. I'm sorry. This is the darndest thing you've ever seen. And he said, the only reason I took my eyes off it is because my colleague down below is shouting at me. You know, what are you doing? I've got a load on the end of my crane. And he says, when I look back, you're gone. So again, I said, did you, did you tell anybody? He said, I told my family about it. It's, it's never been a secret. But he says, in 1973, who the hell do you tell? You know, I just told my family. And, and, and there's been more and more people step forward because thankfully, since Calvin came out and told his story, um, he was being largely treated by the media with great respect unlike what happened in 1973. So that encouraged others, plus they're of an age now where they don't really care, you know, they're in their 60s or 70s. Um, so they're not bothered what anybody thinks anymore. And I'll also I'll give you another example. Uh, so this, this all took place on October the 11th, 1973. On November the 4th, just a few weeks later, in the same part of the river, just a bit further out, there are three little skiffs fishing one night. And they saw something under the water. It was circular. It, it was segmented. They described it as looking like a, an old-fashioned parachute that had segments on it. It lit up. They got close enough to it to hit it with an oar from the boat, and it went clunk. And they played cat and mouse with it in, in the water. So eventually they went and reported it to the Coast Guard station and the Coast Guard sent a boat out. They too saw it and they too hit it with something and it went plunk. So we have all the Coast Guard documents. It was officially recorded and reported. The Navy came out the next day. Um, now, a colleague of mine says, oh, did you know, Philip? Because I, I mean, I have literally pestered everyone I can think of, Brandon. Have you got anything on the Pascagoula case? This chap said, a colleague of mine's got a photograph of all those fishermen that night. It was taken the following day by the, uh, the Coast Guard. He lines them up on the side and takes a... So I, I got it from him. It's a colour photograph. They're all lined up. And on the back of it, again, is all their names and their ages. So I put this photograph on social media. We, literally within two hours, we had a lady contact us. She said, I know them all. They're all dead apart from one. And that one is my father-in-law. He's Mr. Whatever. I can't remember his name now. My colleague, Dr. Irina Scott, I got the phone number. A couple of days later, Irene is on the phone to him, did a full interview. Nobody's ever spoken to him since that time. And this is just, you know, a couple of weeks after what happened to Charlie and Calvin. You could argue it's got nothing to do with it, but because it's a different time. But it's in the same part of the river, just a little bit further out. Uh, and of course, what is in vogue at the moment, Brandon, is all these things that the Navy have seen that originated either underwater or they went under the water at some point. This thing is in the water. There's all the Coast Guard officers' names. We even have a letter from, a, from one of the Coast Guard, a handwritten letter describing what he saw. So that's all reproduced in, 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 in the new book next year. And I just find it amazing, you know. And the more the more we 
publicize this event, the more we find out about it. I was just literally speaking to Kelvin Parker this morning on Skype before speaking to you. And um, there, has, there has been um, interesting developments, I'll, I'll say, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I've been wanting to connect with Calvin. I, we just haven't yet, but we have had Dr. Irina Scott on. And she spoke about this, and all the new revelations are fascinating, man. You guys have done some phenomenal work on this. Uh, and she, I, I want to say that I remember from her book that the Blairs actually think this is the couple that was across, and she was with her husband waiting on the boat and hanging out before she dropped him off for work. And they, she did report this gray uh, entity after a splash in the water and then went under the water. But isn't there something, too, that they possibly had contact as well? Isn't there some missing time having to do with uh, absolutely, them? That absolutely. That will all be revealed next year. When I first spoke to Mrs. Blair on the telephone, I've spoken to Mr. Blair. What I will say, I couldn't have done any of this without working with Dr. Irina Scott. We, you know, we've made a great little team. Um, Mrs. Blair said, I always thought that maybe something like that had happened to us as well. I said, why do you, why do you say that, Maria? She says, I can see something in my peripheral vision, but because it's in my peripheral vision, I can't quite make it out what it is. So she had these little glimpses, for want of a better word, little things that annoyed her. You know, they weren't in your face. It wasn't these blue lights. It wasn't the thing in the water. There was something else happening. And all I can say is we'll reveal it all next year. And, you know, it, it is astounding. What's happened recently Charlie Hickson died in 2011, uh, but we managed to find his son, Eddie. And uh, again, Irene has interviewed Eddie on the phone. And I've spoken to him on the phone. And I said, Eddie, you know, one of the things I ask everybody, have you got any of your father's paperwork? No, Hurricane Katrina took care of all that. However, I've got two boxes of tapes. These are the old cassette tapes and the old VHS videotapes. And so I have no idea what's on any of them because I, I haven't got a cassette player and I haven't got a, I haven't got a, a VHS player. So we are literally, as, literally as we speak, I, I spoke to Eddie last night about this, make, trying to make arrangements to obtain these two boxes of tapes from him and have them digitized and find out what he thinks he knows maybe what's on one or two of them, but there's two boxes full. And even little things crop up about this case all the time. For example, I found out, I'm sure it's this year, under COVID, the years have tended to blur one into the other, but the famous author, Eric Von Daniken, paid Charlie Hickson a visit and went to the site and interviewed him. And uh, from Von Daniken's assistant, uh, I got two photographs that he took that day. One is of Charlie and one is of the, the encounter site. It, it's no great revelation, but it's another little interesting thing that happened uh, to this case. Similarly, um, everybody will probably have heard of the, the rock band Fleetwood Mac. You know, in 1976, Fleetwood Mac released a song called Hypnotized. It's partly inspired by Charlie and Calvin's encounter. That's cool. And in 1976, um, Italian 
TV company called Rai, R-A-I, made a two-part movie called Extra about Charlie and Calvin. Calvin had no idea. You know, I've got a clue. I got a copy of this. I have it on, on DVD. I can't understand a word of it, you know, but uh, uh, thankfully, the where you find it online, there was an introduction in English so I could understand what was going on. And, the, and we've, you know, all these little things have happened that Calvin was oblivious to, you know. Um, so every time we... We, we publicise the case, other little things seem to to come to pass, shall we say. And we're going to, everything we've got is going to be on the table for next year. God, it's just so interesting and it's such a fascinating case. I'm so grateful that you guys have taken such an interest in this. And you and Dr. Irina Scott are a phenomenal team. Yes, absolutely. Because you both just yes and each other. You're like, and look what I found and look what I found. And I love that the uh, physical trace evidence was noted so well that was... Um, marked on them on the left arm and the left foot uh does this denote and i'm just curious about this one thing i'll stop asking you about it but the three lines were they the same evenly spaced apart on both men as if used by the as if the same tool or instrument no no they look they look totally different the arm the the wounds are fairly lengthy and the marks on calvin's foot are, are only small so what i've done in or what I will be doing in the new book, I've put the original and then I've done a, an enlargement so you can see it clearer. And, and I've got a couple of medical opinions to go with it. It's difficult looking at, you know, photographs that 50 years old from a medical point of view, what's caused them. But I, I, I thought if I don't do it, I'll get criticised. I may get criticised even if I do it, but I'm going to do it anyway, you know. Um and again, you know, we're, we're not trying to say this that happened or that happened. We're just saying this is what we've, the evidence we've located and obtained. Um, draw your own conclusions. We've even interviewed Calvin's wife, Waynette, although she saw nothing. But what she can tell us in great detail is how this affected her husband. In fact, in a joke, we actually blamed Waynette. We said it's her fault because Calvin had recently got engaged. And he wanted a regular job. He was working three jobs. That's why he went out to Pascagoula. He didn't live there. So he went for a nine-to-five job, then come home on a weekend, and he's got time to spend with his, you know, his, his fiancée. One of the reasons why Calvin originally, they, they made up this pact, did Charlie and Calvin. Charlie would tell the story. Calvin would say, I passed out. I can't remember anything. Um because it scared the bejesus out of him. And he didn't want the story to get out. And one of the reasons he didn't want the story to get out was because he thought his future father-in-law would not let him marry his sweetheart, Waynette, because their, their, their wedding was on the horizon. So he was worried. I mean, that would never happen today. Times have changed, you know. Um, but he was genuinely worried that, her father would say, you're not marrying my daughter, you lunatic, you know? Um, so that was, you know, people have to understand and we don't have that old fashioned kind of, can I marry your daughter thing now? So they have to re remember this is a different time frame, and, and things were, were done differently. And that's, and that's one of the reasons he was worried uh, about the story getting out. But what Wayneette can tell us is how this affected Calvin. Same with Eddie. We asked Eddie Hickson, how did this affect your father? Now, his father had been a veteran. He'd fought in the war in Korea and, and was involved in some quite, you know, serious incidents. Um, but he said, you know, it frightened my mother. 
although she hadn't seen anything, he said she was almost always looking over her shoulder, wondering if it would happen to, to them again, and this time with her. So he scared her, you know? Um, and you can only get that, really, that from, from a, a family member. Uh, like I say, I spoke to Eddie literally last night, and we're going to try and get these tapes from him and have them digitised. Who knows what may be on them? It could just be old interviews, you know? But here's a little funny thing as well. Charlie Hickson made a record. He wasn't singing, but he actually recorded his story on a vinyl, on a, on a vinyl record. And uh, I have it. I have the, the record and we have the audio of it as well. And it's just, it's just him talking away. So he, he wanted to preserve his, his, his story, no matter what he could. We're also working on a, uh, a graphic novel that is pretty much finished. Uh, and that will be out next year. And that will tell Charlie and Calvin's story. And then, it looks, I'm, I know I'm biased, but I have to be honest, it looks great. Oh, I believe it's, you. Everything you can do is fascinating. Yeah. Because, well, you know, Cal, I asked Calvin what he wanted out of all this, and he said, I just want to tell my story now, Philip. It's, it's his legacy. Okay, if we make a few dollars out of selling the books, fine. But that's not, that's not the reason we've done it. Because Calvin is getting to the age where he's got, like me, fewer years in front of him than he has behind him. He's got a daughter. He'd never told his wife the full story. So this is his legacy. And, of course, the graphic novel, it's a different marketplace, different audience. And, you know, but it does look great. You know, the, the gentleman that's, that's written it, it's called uh, uh, Martin Powell. And a colleague of mine called Jason Gleaves has done the artwork. And... Uh, I think I even get my ugly face in it in part. I mean, I'm not, you know. <laughs> you better. Uh, well, I don't know. They might have edited it out. I don't know. But, you know, they've done a great job. And I just I just hope, I'm not I'm not worried about sales on money. I'm just hoping it gets out to a bigger audience. That would be great. Absolutely. And it's so interesting that you note uh, Calvert's apprehension to report it, but this shows the authenticity of it, how scared he was, but still, and no, I just want to, I'll say I was passed out and Charlie, you can, you can talk about it. That's just so interesting. It does definitely point to the authenticity. Well, I almost drove him to suicide at one point. I mean, I don't know if anybody remembers the, the old TV series of the Hulk in the 1980s, you know, the Hulk would move from town to town. There was a journalist chasing him. And every time he caught up, he would pack up and move. Well, Calvin was exactly like that. And he got a young family and his wife. And, and when they catch up with him, he'd move somewhere else. He even used a fake name at one point. And um, he got so depressed with it, he phoned his insurance company and said, am I covered for suicide? And they said, no. So he went to a cowboy bar and picked a fight with six cowboys, thinking they'd beat the living daylights out of him, literally, and kill him. And his wife could have the, the insurance money. Jesus. And they did beat the living daylights out of him, but he's this is and it's kind of funny because Calvin laughed. He says, I staggered out of the door, I was so disorientated, I turned around and walked back in again. <laughs> and they beat me some more, you know. And he laughs about it, you know. And he said, But I'm still alive. And um what he has said is he, he wish he'd told his story earlier. Now, we also found out, 
Um, this is this is how research can be done. I'm, I'm not saying I'm a template for what you should do, but we found out that Charlie was hypnotized twice by the late Bud Hopkins. And we have those tapes. We have copies of them. Calvin also had another encounter in 1993, this time on a little fishing boat on his own, and was hypnotized by Bud Hopkins. Him and his pal drove to Florida when Bud was appearing at a convention there, and, and Bud put him under hypnosis, and we have that tape as well. And, you know, so all, all this has just expanded and expanded and expanded, and we keep finding new things all the time. And um, we've often joked, Calvin and I, we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, and we don't. Um, but it is a fascinating story. I, I, I'm biased, Brandon, but I would say when, when you see what we've dug up and when you see the, new, the witnesses that have stepped forward, I'll give you, I'll give you another example. When, when Calvin's book came out, I was contacted by a chap in Greece. It's called Stephanos. Panagiotakis. Stephanos in 1981 was in the Greek Merchant Navy, but he was also a UFO researcher. And they docked in Pascagoula. His boat docked there. So he set out, he got a week shore leave to find Charlie and interview him, which he did. Uh, but he was also introduced to a gentleman called Emmanuel Sigalas, who was a pastor, he was a local clergyman of Greek origin. And Pastor Sigala said, on the night in question, October the 11th, 1973, myself and a chap called Mr. Broadus, who was from the probation department, and a young lady who was a church volunteer set off to go to a church meeting that tried to help people with alcohol problems. As they're driving down the road, this young lady in the back sees this thing out the side window. She thinks it's, it's, it's Jesus coming. She thinks it's, 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 it has that an effect on her. She's the first to see it. It flew right across the front of them, right over the road, heading towards where Charlie and Calvin were. So Stephanos interviewed Pastor Sigalas. We have the full transcript of it. Uh, sadly, him and Mr. Broadus have passed away. However, who's the young lady sat in the back of the car? Mr. Sigalas couldn't remember her name. He just knew her as Joe. Joe. So we dug and we dug and we dug and we found her name. So I looked and looked and looked. A colleague tried to help me. We thought we found her relatives that lived in New York. So I phoned these people in New York. Yes, they had someone by that name, but she'd never lived in Mississippi. She'd never been in Pascagoula. So I eventually found her on social media, but it was an account that was long since dormant, never being used. And I'm just looking and looking. Now, remember, when this happened in 1973, she was a church volunteer. And on her profile was the name of a church. And this church was still going, but it wasn't in, in Mississippi. It was actually in Maryland. I don't know geographically where that is from Mississippi, but I know it's not next door. No, it's in the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, so mm -hmm. I found the church. It had a website and I'm not going to reveal a name, but on the website were a couple of sermons that you could access and listen to. 
and they had the same surname as her. And I thought, could this be her son's? So I emailed the church, explained I was looking to speak to this lady. I gave her full name. I said she'd worked with Pastor Sigalas in Mississippi in 1970, but I didn't say anything else. And if they knew her, could they pass my details on? About four weeks or so went by, heard nothing, and then, bing, she contacted me. Yes, thank you very much. I did work with Mr. Sigalas, you know, we did this, that, and the other. And I thought, well, I've got to tell her. So I said, that's great. I'm glad I've got the right lady. However, I want to speak to you about what you saw on the night of October the 11th, 1973. And it all went quiet. And I thought, oh, I've scared her off. Then boom, she came back. Yes, I'll tell you I'll tell you what I saw that night. I introduced her to Dr. Irina Scott. She gave Irina the phone number. Irina brings her up, interviews, and she tells us the whole story, which more or less is exactly what Pastor Sigala said back in 1981. So we managed to find her and uh, shows you what you can do with a bit of determination and perseverance. And then once we knew who the lady was um, and what she'd done, we got a little bit of history about her. We found a, an old photograph of her from 1972. So we, we're going to put the old photo in the book because she, she's allowed us to use her real name, you know. So I'm not hiding it, it, it but it will go in the book. And, that, you know, that's how we've done it. I mean, just find a little clue and, and don't let go, you know. It's so interesting, the the work you put into this and the creativity you have on tracking these folks down and getting corroborating stories. I mean, it's really a detective work in itself. You know, yes, the story itself is a mystery, but for you to track all these folks down in the real world, detached from the story itself and how magnificent it is, that alone is very interesting. You're just a really cool detective. I love well, it. You know, all, all these individuals are all independent from one another. Nobody knows them. You know, they don't know each other. Uh, one of the critics, of course, because where this incident happened, there's the Highway 90 bridge goes right across the river. Somebody said, oh, somebody from the bridge would have seen it. Well, they, they did actually, and they reported it to us. We have a gentleman said, I'm, I'm driving over the bridge with my wife. And he said, bearing in mind, he said, I see this blue thing down below. He said, I thought it was going to crash. And he says, Rather apologetically, he said, I only saw it for about 30 seconds. Well, 30 seconds is a long time. So he told us what he saw, and he says, the next day, he said, I went to visit my aunt, who lives down by the river. And he said, before I could open my mouth, she said to me, you'll never guess what I saw last night. So we do have someone who was on the, the Highway 90 bridge that night, driving his car, who did indeed see something, you know, and it's not something spectacular. It's not like something our close encounters. It's another piece of the puzzle, you know, and and it's just as valuable as all the rest of the information. And it, again, you know, he he will be in the, in the the new book next year. It's so interesting, and it validates because of the specific color blue that all of these people reported the same color light signature, that it wasn't changing or oscillating or bright white or red or orange. Well, I saw it was orange, and I saw it was blue. Everyone says that area, that time of night, because it was about 9 p.m., something like that. Uh, everyone has the same color 
light story. And it was all fantastic. It stood out to them. All of them took note of it as something extraordinary. That's fascinating, man. The the again, the pieces that you're putting together on this are unbelievable. Yeah, I mean it's 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 we found it astounding. We thought we might get one or two, if we're honest, Brandon, because when we go back to Charlie Hickson's book, which I republished, there is there is a couple of witnesses in there. Right. Uh, because we have to remember this is not an out of the way location. It's right next to the highway. It was a bit what we call scruffy at that time, but it's it wasn't in the middle of nowhere. It's all been cleaned up. The area's all tidy now. The, the pier has, has long since gone, although we have some photographs of it, uh, you know, from, from the time frame. Um, so we thought we might get one or two if we were lucky. But uh, I used to, I, I speak to Calvin regularly, you know, on, on Skype and I say, Calvin, and so what are you going to tell me now? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what else you got? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love how he described the female too. He, you know, described her uh, the occupant of the of the craft with the longer fingers that was more interactive with him physically. That uh, he said, you know, she could walk among us, and I would. She seemed lovely. I would have loved to have had lunch with her. Is a quote that he's. Well, uh, he, he said something a bit cruder to, than that. He said, you know, if I've had a few beers in a bar, that you know, <laughs> yeah, I was churching it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he did. He, he said exactly that, and he said, you know. Same with the second encounter in 1993. The female is part of that. 20 years later. And That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, what is also interesting, when he went under hypnosis, with, both with Bud and in 2019 with Kathleen Marden, Calvin talks about a couple of incidents in his childhood. And there is this female. So there's a possibility that he had other encounters when he was a, a young lad. And, and the, the, the common denominator amongst them all is this female, you know, because he used to share a bedroom with his brother. And his brother said to him one night, the ghost is blowing in my ear again. Tell him to stop it. Because uh. his brother, Calvin said his brother was the brains. Calvin was the brawn. And he said, if anybody, you know, picked on my brother at school, they had me to deal with, you know. So his, his, his brother's saying, make the, make the ghost go away, Calvin. The ghost is blowing in my ear. It, it weren't no ghost, <laughs> you oh. know? <laughs> so interesting, man. And then there was another incident that, you know, when they were fishing and this, this strange woman appeared in, in, the, in the woods nearby. And so she's the, whatever she is, and I use she in inverted commas, she is the common denominator amongst all of these. And um, again, make of it what you will. We've got some artwork depicting it in, in the book and depicting what this, these beings look like. Again, done by my colleague, Jason Gleaves. He, he, he didn't just read it and make it up. He spoke to Calvin, you know, on Skype. Uh, we have Mrs. Blair's um, encounter um, and Mr. Blair's encounter. Again, artwork done by Jason. He spoke with Mrs. Blair online and, and got, you know, took a description of it. He didn't just read it and, um, you know, invent it. So they're as accurate as they can be anyway. And um, they're both happy with them. You guys just do such tremendous work. It's such tremendous work. And that's why I'm so honored uh, to be a part of the Flying Disc family. So um, I'll tell you what, my friend, we're going to cap it on this one. Of course, all the ways to find you, uh, UFO Landings UK, your new book and all of your other books, all the Flying Disc press stuff. You guys know out there listening how 
how much I love these guys. And Philip Mantle is the spoke of everything. So thank you so much again for your time. You know you're welcome back anytime. We need to get something together to where we all, Dr. Irina Scott, Calvin Parker, you and me, and we all sit down and just talk about well, the there's, new There's findings. no point. If you have Calvin on, we'll never get a word in anyways because <laughs> you just switch him on and he'll tell you the story, you know? <laughs> well, for uh, us all be there, though. That'd still be fun. I would love to do just like a Pascagoula panel, man. Let's set something like that up soon. Well, why not? It's the 50th anniversary next year. So oh, we gotta maybe, do it. yeah, maybe that might be the time. Maybe we might get some of the other witnesses to to chip in as well. Who knows? Yeah, this is this is fascinating, Philip. Again, uh, your family man. You're welcome anytime. I cannot thank you enough for your time, brother. And we will absolutely do it again soon. My pleasure. And, and uh, you know, if I can help in any way, or if anybody's got any information about Pascagoula, yeah. please please get in touch. Truly grateful for Philip Mantle coming by and hanging out with us. Always such a cool dude. Um, and I meant that. Uh, he His voice is on as many episodes as mine is. He's the first Expanding Reality in the intro song. So that's really, really cool. And just an awesome guy. Uh, all of the authors I've been able to meet and bring to you guys is through Philip. Uh, the Kinsella boys, of course. Mark Ali, uh, Paul Askoff, Dr. Irina Scott. You've got, um, come on, come on, come on. Ryan Musgrave Evans. All these cool ones just off the top of my head here. Uh, and it, it's just such an awesome family. I'm so grateful to be a part of it. So you guys definitely check the show notes for all the ways to find Flying Disc Press, Philip Mantle, all of his books, UFO Landings UK is located down there specifically. So it'll take you right to that one. Um, so other than that, guys, check out our resource links that are located down there as well. Food Forest Abundance, get your freedom from fear on Libs and go ahead and start your own podcast because you know you should. Feed the Amazon beast through our link. It helps the show. Opus is down there, uh, the Organization for Paranormal Understanding and Support. Go ahead and use them as a resource for any high strangeness phenomena that you may have in- encountered that you can't explain. They can definitely help you out with that. It's a killer community. So check them out for sure. Also located down there, guys, is expandingrealitypodcast.com. That's going to be a central hub for all things expanding reality. Go over and check it out. Go out into this beautifully mysterious place, whatever the hell this thing is, guys, and y'all just pick up a piece of litter, of course. Keep your eyes to the sky because there's always cool stuff going on out there and report what you see, right? Uh, As well as y'all just be nice to everybody that you come across, any lizard turds or anything. They're all here just trying to figure it out too. So hold doors open, buy somebody in line around you, a coffee or a meal, something like that, guys. It sends a huge ripple effect, and that's how we affect change and create the new world that we're all after here. Also, while you're doing all of that, get out of the left-hand lane. It's a pain in the ass. You got somebody behind you wanting to pass. Just move on over and let us get by, and there you go. All right, guys. So other than all of that kind of stuff, you know what I'm going to say. Y'all go out into this beautifully amazing place, whatever the hell it is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.